to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, your guide to all places and plots exalted. I'm Rails and... I'm Aramithius. We are talking about story hooks for the realm at this point. The realm is a big, sprawling organization and empire and everything else across creation. So how on earth do you make games out of the thing? Uh, particularly with this one, I should note, we're talking about games where you are playing dragon-blooded and dynastic protagonists and that sort of thing. Um, so there's going to be less on how the mechanics of the realm can be used as an antagonistic force in this because generally speaking that's going to be a lot of other exalted games where the realm isn't the focus but and equally that'll be out on the threshold if you're playing yeah. any any exalt that isn't a dragon on the isle your life expectancy is not particularly great. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah. But before we get into that, um, I just wanted to say, if you have any feedback for us, then please do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. And if you like our show, or even if you don't, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you can leave a review. We would absolutely love to hear you guys' feedback. And frankly, the ratings help people find us as well. So from an utterly selfish perspective of getting more listeners, help us out if you like us. <laughs> yes. Send us reviews about how much she don't like my sidereal hatred or whichever other inaccuracies or quibbles you have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. But yeah, this is not the place to go into. Truth is all a matter of perspective because it's not. But anyway. <laughs> Right. And the truth is that SIDs are evil. Right, the realm of which which the Sidereals have yes. less to deal with. Anyway, realm games in principle. This is never your beginner game. If you're setting your first game for people that have never heard of Exalted before on the aisle, not to put too fine a point on it, you're setting yourself up to fail. That You need people that know what the setting is, at least passingly, if not more or are very, very willing to learn and very, very quick on the uptake to make a realm game work. Yeah. Because otherwise it's any character that is in a realm game with one notable exception that we will cover later is expected to know all about the realm. Yeah. And, well, I suppose you could do things, well, we'll get, we'll get to the exception, but that exception could almost be one way of kind of introducing the setting but it's possibly it depends on what sort of a flavor you are wanting to introduce yes. with your players as to whether that's a good idea to feed them the setting that way or not yeah but yeah i wouldn't say that it's absolutely out of the question for people who've never played the game before but it does take a fairly quick learner um in order to pick up on all of the nuances one of the things that i was actually quite surprised about with the dragon blooded character generation is that they have Essentially, uh, if you're a realm dragon blooded, here's some bonus points. If you're look shy, here's some bonus points. If you're an outcast, here's some bonus points. There's very, very explicit looking through of how you build your characters and their backgrounds because for the realm characters, what high school you went to will determine your favorite attributes, for example. So you need to have that level of an awareness about the setting, which you don't have to have for the other exalt types to the same degree. Yes. Equally as well, as much as we just made it sound like it's hard on the players, it's also running a game in the realm is going to be tricky on you as a storyteller. The realm is a very, very dense, very, very tightly woven mesh of a system, can't even call it a country. There is very little you can do that doesn't affect a million other things 
and you as a ref need to be at least partially aware of some of the things that are getting affected by whatever your players are doing. It's not like, say, out in the Hundred Kingdoms or the Scavenger Lands where your players can go around and blow up an ox the size of a mansion and only the people in a nearby village will care. Uh, depends. If you're dealing with satrapies, then you do have that to a degree. Yeah. So there, it's but On the aisle proper. Oh yeah, on the aisle proper, absolutely. Then word is going to get round. It's also a case of the politics are pretty much inescapable. Even in the hypothetical pure military wild hunt game where you're just a bunch of loyal realm dragons going off to stab an evil anathema, you're going to interface with house politics. You're going to interface with the squabbles and quibbles that the nobility have. Yeah. And so you kind of need to be aware of it, even if it's only a background thing. Yeah, I feel like probably the only time where that isn't the case is if you're dealing with a party that is entirely one house. And so you don't yes. have to deal with how the houses are perceiving each other. And even then, there's a chance of NPCs and the like where you have to worry about it. Yeah, it, it all. Do, it, I mean, it depends to a to a degree on the story, but yeah, that's that's the thing. the The realm needs to feel like the big presence it is. I think is the main point we're getting to. It needs to feel chunky. It needs to feel like there's a lot going on because there is. And there are ways that you can do that within the story. You can point out that time has been passing, say, and some things change in how you're seeing things. That does take a particular type of story where weeks can go by between sentences almost. So you can see how things develop or come back to the same places and see how change is happening and so on, as well as having NPCs that will have their own machinations and how they will interface with things the players are doing. So with the Realm games, I've said it before and I'll say it again, have an awareness of what your NPCs are going to be doing without player character involvement so that if they are away or at least if they fail at disrupting anything or they just simply aren't interested in what a particular character is doing, that character can be doing what they're doing in the background and so their changes are happening their agendas are advancing so you've got this idea of a much bigger more dynamic moving machine if you like in a word the realm is byzantine in the adjectival sense rather than anything else yeah absolutely it is big and it's complex and this is actually sounding quite a bit like it's don't do this this is a terrible idea no it's not it's really really fun you just need to know what you're getting into. Yeah, it's a fantastic game of what if, basically. Yeah, it's, and there are, yeah, I'll do it now since it's not really a story hook idea. It's rather a tip, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just spoil it to anyone who's played in any of my games, the quick and easy way to deal with these sorts of political machinations is honestly to just humanise it. Like, yes, there are a million moving pieces here, but you can, as a ref, kind of easily narrow it down to, oh, three or four important characters that as long as you know what they want and what their plan is, okay, after every session of your players doing whatever players do to disrupt the world and go absolutely mad as they often do, you decide, okay, now, without telling your players, just sort of behind the scenes, okay, what is person X going to do in response to this mess? What is person Y going to do? What are they doing? Blah, blah, blah. It's basically a case of making your world live past the pages that are written. Yes. And also, just another point of that, try and make everyone's motives a bit distinct. Well, not even a bit mm. distinct, make them very distinct. It's one of the things that it's difficult to strike a balance with is narrative conservation. It's the same reason why you probably won't have two NPCs called John in your games, because 
are you talking about John Smith or are you talking about John Gordonson? It's going to be confusing for the players. Right down to in a D&D game I'm playing, we've got two player characters who, whose names start with the letter V and we are constantly getting confused <laughs> between the two of them. And so keeping your NPCs distinct and keeping their motives yeah. distinct. Don't have characters that are trying to do the same thing or at yeah. least give them different reasons for trying to do the same thing like yeah. if everyone's trying to achieve a particular political goal have them do it in different ways make things a lot more distinct in how things are handled rather than people doing the same thing all the time the shorthand way of doing it is basically just make them of different houses the houses are distinct enough in what is written that if you take your average ragara and your average nemon even if you want them to do the exact same thing, they will go about it in vastly different ways. Yeah, that's true. The houses are fantastic things to kind of lean on for a how to do a thing. And so if you have the option to bring in new houses or a multitude of different houses, do, because it opens up your scope for consequences and for methodologies a lot. You can subvert the stereotypes, of course, but do remember the stereotypes are there for a reason and they're nice to lean on. Yep, absolutely. Although it's, it's a fine balance, leaning on them too much and you'll have people thinking that House X is the cackling villain. I'm sure that my players in my solar game that I ran when I was getting new to the setting are absolutely convinced that the realm itself is nothing but that and everyone should be slaughtered and die because you don't add that nuance. But yeah. To flip the other side of the coin... Please define House Ragara in any words other than cackling villain. <laughs> Moneylender. Again, synonymous. <laughs> I didn't see Ebenezer Scrooge as cackling very much. It uses up too much air. That's true. <laughs> okay, Cack the scale of grimacing to cackling villainy. <laughs> yep, gotcha. <laughs> Oh. But yes, that menacing warning of, of before you run a realm game aside. We should probably get onto the types of games you can run now. We've talked about a good deal about how. Um, and let's start them young, shall we? Mm -hmm. Exalted is not a game that I would particularly recommend as being particularly for, for kids or younger players. But this is how you make your exception. Again, I am, to lift the veil for those of you who only ever hear my voice, I'm a wee bit younger than the co-host here. <laughs> and the dragons, as we have mentioned briefly, and as we'll probably go into much more detail in the actual individual episodes where we cover the places that they're in, your high school, weirdly, is important, or your secondary school, as they call it, because the realm uh, uses the correct name for stages of education. <laughs> the schools of the realm are a big thing, for the nobility at least. They Mechanically, they help define uh, abilities that you are particularly... Sometimes they give you free dots, sometimes they give you favour, sometimes they give you this. It depends on edition, just what your school does, if anything. But they are very important. There are lots of them. And equally, they are described as quite happening places, for use of a better term. It is possible to run a game here, either for actually genuinely younger players, or even for just sort of regular older gaming group. If they're comfortable with then you can get them into the sort of right mindset of, for use of a better term, high school drama, <laughs> but with superpowers. Yeah, basically sit them down in front of a whole bunch of high school anime and you'll about get there. Or, in fact, for the strange subsection of exalted players who don't like anime, which sounds contradictory, but I know a few, the, I want to say sort of mid-2000s, I can't remember the exact date, I'm awful with them, 
But the film Sky High, I would argue, is perfect for it. See, this is the case of you being too old. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. Not what I know. Yeah, Sky High was a Disney film about high school for superheroes, and it toes the line between superhero flick and high school drama really well, and coming of age sort of thing. Completely unrelated to Exalted, other than that it sets this dynamic perfectly of, yeah, here's the school life where, yes, these people do have crazy destructive powers and the like, but the whole thing's built around it, and it still has all of the notes of your high school drama it's your sort of low stakes game it's your interpersonal game you could focus on the lessons sort of doing them as a montage thing or whatever but more interestingly is to get some kind of low-end plot like pick any young adult fiction sort of thing that does this you can use percy jackson you can use whatever you like and you know the sort of plots that i mean where it's like oh yeah it starts off and you're in school, here's your friends that are the party doing this, that, and the other, learning to use your amazing exalted powers and all this nonsense. And then something happens and you get to do your little adventure that's not actually going to get you in too much danger, but enough that it is an adventure. Yeah. Um, I would almost say that something like Harry Potter is a bit too high level for your standard game because in pretty much every single Harry Potter book, they wind up saving the school or doing something of great benefit to the wider wizarding society. And that's yes. not really what you're after with the high school game. Well, after all of those petty little squabbles and those things, like one of the things that I've seen that RPG Clinic does fairly well, um, their actual plays, and they worked in various things to do with teen crushes between various PCs and NPCs and mixes thereof. And so that's absolutely the perfect setting for those sorts of high school games. If you've got players that are comfortable with role-playing out those sorts of emotional roller coasters. Equally, if you do want a slightly more traditional adventure, but in a lighter-hearted setting, you can still have... A, you can still have combat. It all depends on really the school you use. Again, not to go into too fine a point of defining what each of them does, but there is the House of Bells, where it is... for use of a better term, an officer's preparatory school where you are arranged militarily and you go on drills and little squad tests and things like that um, as part of the curriculum for use of a better sense. So you can have straight up a game that is you and your party, which are your squad, because the dormitory arrangements are by squad there as a little barracks thing, because it's adorable. Um, The going off and getting sent on a I don't know, you could say it's a survival exercise and you go out into the woods and then something goes wrong, um, which is the stand where you do all of it story. And it doesn't have to be massive. It can literally just be as small as like your party gets lost and suddenly what was a little test now becomes a real can you survive in the woods and get back sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it can still be quaint. Yeah, and throw in something like maybe one hobgoblin or something that's going to be screwing with them, but is going to be really quite small. But is problem. Yeah. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be an issue and how you throw everything else in. Or the peak, the argument that I thought of, the best one for it, because I raised the House of Bells there, but the one that comes to my head the first, uh, entirely because well, Harry Potter. Do it in the <laughs> heptagram mm. and you have a single first circle demon or something that's or a single lesser elemental or whatever you have, that your maybe the party, maybe just one member, has summoned as part of a class thing or a research thing accidentally and it's kind of gotten loose and you don't want the teachers to know because you'll get in trouble and it's that sort of thing of the hectic running around and then the teachers come and you're like yep no i'm not doing anything trying to chase down this little demon spider that's running around doing demon spider things 
Yeah, and then you've also got to manage that on top of all of your other responsibilities. There's an exam coming up and all this sort of stuff. Yes, and equally, the house, the house drama here isn't as serious as it would be in a big political game, no. but it's still present, and that's the key thing to remember. It's the sort of thing of like in the third edition book specifically, and in a lot of the old ones as well, they do mention that House Cessus, by the time you're in secondary school, you're sending reports home because the House raises you to do so. And it's that sort of thing of like House Sinus. Yeah, you're not going to be getting involved in big intrigues and the like, but your mum and dad still are expecting that you're going to be immaculately dressed and looking the part. And also you should be keeping your ear open when you are. And it's that sort of thing of the houses do have expectations. It's just that they come across as less major political moves here and more high school cliques. <laughs> yeah, and to go with House Sinus, you're probably going to be your particular group's fixer for getting any kind of substance in and out of the school grounds. So Yeah, and it's, it's that sort of thing. It works the whole gamut as well, because anything you could think of from your high school drama, it's like, yeah, the pretty cheerleader, yeah, that's Sinus. There's no way that's not Sinus. Or the big jock, that's Kathak or maybe Tepet, depending on whether you want them to be jock that has money or jock that doesn't. <laughs> and it's that sort of thing. You can you can line it up really nicely. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of how to adapt Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode to heptagram high school games now. The awful thing is, when you say that, I have watched a fair bit of Buffy, nowhere near all of it, but whenever anyone says talk about adapting Buffy, my mind always goes to Once More with Feeling. The one <laughs> yes. where it was a musical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which arguably is the perfect heptagram level threat. Um, yes. Of just, yes, you've accidentally done a spell or let loose a demon that's making everyone sing and dance. And it's like, yeah, that's not a major threat. That's not going to destroy the world. It's just an inconvenience because you've been imprudent with your magic. Yes, absolutely. And it's that sort of thing. This, this is a lighter game. This is a more fun game. This is one you can, yeah, you can do with younger players or you can do with your regular group if you can get them into the right mindset. But it's it's rare that Exalted makes something that can happen with this because however wacky it is, Exalted is, when you actually read it, quite a dark universe. Yes, absolutely. Before we move on to other bits and bobs, I just wanted to talk about the place of lessons within this. I wouldn't focus this sort of thing as lessons as an info dump. Don't no. have your high school game as something for new players and then have the teachers stand up. Well, the Scarlet Empress founded the realm over 200 years ago, and it was to save creation from the Belsarian Crusade. And you know, no, your players are going to fall, to fall asleep. What you do is you use lessons, firstly, as a way to pitch teachers as characters. So you have your kind of pre-lesson interactions as your main way of doing that. So have teachers interact with particular pupils and that sort of thing. Yes, this probably will involve you talking to yourself for a while, but don't make those too long because players like to be interacted with and talking to yourself as GM gets very, very confusing. But you can also use use lessons. When I was thinking about lessons as a montage, it's kind of the sense of you go th over certain days and you learn certain things in certain locations or it's a way of expressing how someone changes in the longer term because you have that regular contact. And yeah. so you can talk through how stuff goes from day to day or week to week in the context of lessons in a way that's not as contrived as in other settings quite easily. You can also arguably, I would say, use it as a slight bit of character advancement. Yeah. If you wanted to, basically, if your player's at point of character generation, I know there are rules in third for making a freshly hatched dragon blood, so that should be fine. But 
um, I can't remember the exact numbers on how many charms they give you at, out, out the gate. I know it's not zero, but you do get some. But it's the sort of idea of, yeah, at session zero, those charms are on your sheet, but you don't have them. You get them through you doing your lessons with your things. So it's like, say, if you're doing a Cloister Wizard game and you've got someone that's taken a martial arts out the gate because they've spent all of their character points on martial arts, you can have the whole little cool thing with doing your bump, bum, wax on, wax off montage in, with the monks in, in the front and then be like, and now you can use that martial arts charm you've got. If you are someone who's taken some of the Dragonblade lore charms to, or linguistics charms to know things or understand bits and bobs, you can have the literary bit of, you go through your history lessons, you meet Professor Vanif and Professor Tepet, probably. Um, I'll get to that in a second. But you meet them, you learn this, and you understand it more, and then click, you get a little bit with the thing. And it is doing it as a coming-of-age thing and the power acquisition thing that I think really is necessary to drum in with mm-hmm. this. Because it works. And I said I'd get to that in a minute with Tepet. One of my players in one of my games, just in writing the backstory for one of his characters, kind of landed on something that I think works far too well in that the most common place to see a Tepet now is as the sort of old, old secondary school teachers who have quite a bit of influence in the school, but otherwise they're, they're kind of just sort of washed up. Oh, that, that, that makes me feel sad. <laughs> he had his main tutor at the stair be a Tepet. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, and that's... That's as good as Tepet gets anymore. Yeah, that makes total sense. Or, yeah, they get to be running the House of Bells or something like that. Yeah, and it's that sort of thing of you have... It's ways to drill in little bits throughout the universe. of Like, yeah, here's the Tepet that's all old and traditional and like the, the British people here are already seeing presumably their old headmaster, Tweed Jacket, whole bit. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's... Not to be too rude, but it is the thing of the Tepet are as much as I might love them, a relic of a bygone age. Pretty much at this point, yeah. One last thing to bear in mind before we move on from high school games is that just because a school is focused, it doesn't mean that all of the characters have to have the same thing. The Mm. limitations on the numbers of charms does really help with that in that when you build out a character who's in the House of Bells, your whole group will probably focus on different disciplines. I mean, Fighting is somewhat is somewhat easier because you can have people focusing on melee versus ranged versus the strategic elements of it. And you can have all of those stereotypes within um, the military. But the other schools are potentially a little harder to kind of wrap your head around what those differences are. And making sure that you work out the different kind of conceptual spaces between the characters and the kinds of characters that they are. This is where you need to get need to get your players nailing down what type of person they are wanting to play, as well yeah. as, oh, I just want to play a House Regara who's good with figures and I'm obviously going to the Spiral Academy and going to lick up to everyone. Um, well, yeah, that's your obvious stereotype for, for that sort of a game. I'd argue, actually, a lot of the schools allow for the range, because House of Bells, you already said what the range is. Mm. Cloister of Wisdom, there's a lot of range within that. Like, you can be your law guy, you can be your martial arts guy, you can be lots of things within the remit of... I mean, it's like, it's like real life. Not everyone who goes to a church school is the same. Um, and it's that sort of thing. The only one that I'd say that really, really funnels you in tight is the heptagram. But then if you've consumed any Harry Potter, you know how to make different characters within the still and breach of you're trying to do magic. <laughs> yeah, it's... And I think it's also willing to have characters that aren't purely focused on the same thing as the school. Yes. I th- this, the issue with having schools that are focused on disciplines is, oh, I'm going to X school. I therefore need to be good at X discipline. No, no, you don't. Your parents could have just sent you there. Your nobility. In, well, <laughs> in fairness, 
um, with Dragon Blood, if there's a good amount of effort expended to find out what they're good at and to place them there. Um, yeah, but, but there is equal chance that like there are. You can just make the argument of your little family within the house is known and expected to be this. You're trying to be basically yeah filtered into a role. Let's go with the House Ragra one again. Even if you're a House Ragra kid who hates maths for whatever reason, your parents will be like, no, 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 you're going to work for the bank and you will get funneled through to that even if you really just want to hit things with a hammer. <laughs> and that's, that's an angle of character drama you can go with of, I am here, I'm being made to do this, but I don't want to. Particularly if you can insert elder sibling non-player yes. characters in because that that's another staple of the genre yeah and equally and i, I cannot i cannot stress this enough storytellers if you're going to make the villain for this and you sit down and think oh i think they're a bit too sneering and a bit too obviously evil no 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 go with that D- trust me that's what children in school are like Yes. Like, Draco Malfoy is not a caricature of evil. That's just what kids are like when they get that kind of authority and self-righteousness. You don't have to be as focused. You do have to focus on the nuance, but you don't have to think that the nuance means that you have to file the extremities off. (laughs) Especially because dragon-blooded, young dragon-bloods are described explicitly a lot as being not necessarily a lot more volatile. It does vary by the element, as we've sort of discussed before, but they are more... (laughs) It is, is, is in brief. <laughs> yes. And I think pro- before we get sucked down to making this entirely about high school games, we need to, find, yes. we need to move on. <laughs> we do, we do. It's, you can't tell it's a really fun game idea that both of us want to run at some time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, the next one is the flip side. We've now done Harry Potter. Let's go to Yes Minister. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you haven't seen, and I'm well aware that it's probably not as well known across the pond, but it is one of the most fantastic programs about mm-hmm. British government and government in general that has ever graced God's green earth. Watch, watch Yes Minister, watch In the Thick of It, and there you go, you understand British politics. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is not British politics. Yes. This is realm politics. Less silly titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, depends on whether you're in the... In the Ministry for Airships. Show me the realm's black rod. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have we have a we have a monopoly on silly titles. Anyway, the the Ministry games. The realm's government is wonderfully Byzantine. There will inevitably be more detail of of it across this series, but there are lots of places you can slot into it. This one is very much your. I opened it with Yes Minister in the thick of it for a reason, or for those across the pond, House of Cards. This is going to be, you are somewhere involved in the machine of the realm's running. It is your your political game, for use of a better term, where you will get to, well, no, it's Dragon Bloods. You will probably still get to fight something occasionally, but the it's a lot more, this is for your players that like to just sort of sit down and do the talking and maybe roll a few dice occasionally. Yeah, and it's um, when you say it's a political game, you need to differentiate it from satrap politics. Yes. And it's not necessarily about land. So, um, the satrap games uh, or satrapy games are much more about how a place is run. Ministry games are about who is doing what and how they're doing what. 
not it's not about it's not about uh, making things making sure that you've got the the right things in the right to control a place. You are controlling a process and trying to work out how you can do that and set that up. It is a more social game because you're going to be dealing with trying to persuade people a lot more as opposed to using brute force and just killing them because people will have their shoes filled and the process will roll on. It is, I would argue, of all the ones that we will cover here, the like that one like the high school one, like we mentioned, you can you can ignore our warning about someone's first game of Exalted being a realm game for stuff like the high school one. And for some of these other ones, this is also true. This one and one other one are the two where no 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 knowledge is actually required. Mm. Yeah, because you need to have an awareness of what your effects are going on. Because if you're dealing with players in the ministries, then you're probably not going to have first-hand accounts of what's going on on the ground. You're going to get missives coming in. And it also gets down into another layer of the realm. It, it's not low stakes in quite the same way as a high school game. But if you're doing particular stuff within ministries, the patrician houses will have a lot more sway within these. So make patricians matter make the full mechanisms of the realm it's, a lot more apparent. Just to trigger some people sending in angry, angry letters, it's a way to make House Nellens interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because House Nellens could almost be your antagonist for a game like this because yep. they will have so many things in your pocket. That's the thing as well. When it comes to a villain, the high school one, like we said, the villain will be some minor, unimportant thing. Here, your villain can actually be it can just be a little rivalry if you've got a, a house, a party that is just one house. It can literally be as simple as someone of one of the other houses is trying to make a move that will be negatively affecting our house. We want to stop that. But you can do a really big, serious villain in this sort of situation if you have, for example, your immediate boss or someone who outranks you isn't actually operating in the realm's interest. They could be an Iselsi or they could be doing something really dodgy. But you can have that sort of thing where the system suddenly becomes, from being your day job and your cosy thing, it suddenly becomes some chains that are making it almost impossible for you to stop that you know there's something going on. You can make it really conspiratorial, is the word I'm looking for. Yes, and that sort of thing, you do need to breadcrumb quite heavily, though, because uh, mm. as much as players will seize on insignificant details and just run off in entirely different directions, the flip side of that is that they will also ignore things that you put right in front of them and you think are blindingly obvious. It's why I'd almost be tempted with this. Just the the, the little evil hand-rubbling, cackling goblin that generates half the stories I write. It just makes me sort of think with this that you have an initial, use a better term, tutorial character in the form of the sort of, could be just the supervisor or whatever, that you start the game when the characters are just getting into their new position in the bureaucracy so that you can get them to learn the dynamics and have a reason for them to meet all of the NPCs, both in character and out of character, rather than just saying, yeah, this is your best friend. Ah, uh, the awkward, the awkward showing everyone around the desk and everyone saying, hi, I've been here for X years and I do Y. <laughs> yeah, it's that sort of thing. But you have meeting the colleagues, doing a little bit of things like that. And that supervisor is your main antagonist, but they're also the ones that are sort of sending the players about. There's a million different examples of fiction doing this sort of thing because it's a really obvious way to do the villain where you have the nice happy manager person that you like and you love off the top and you're you're giving your reports to them and be like ah yeah there's some irregularities in this province's tax income uh there must be some he's like, ah yeah there must be some tax evasion going on we'll send some people off to deal with it and it's just him bucketing it 
or that sort of thing. You have two ways of breadcrumbing it. Either you give them loads and loads and loads of info to work with so that you can afford to let them just miss some, because players will. Or you make it a person that they interact with so frequently that eventually something will have to click. Or equally, if it doesn't, don't be afraid to let your players fail. They don't have to lose the game completely, but they can still fail in a significant enough way. My immediate thought with this is a house ragger, a supervisor sort of thing, because house ragger are the house that we have the most canonical examples of them looking like they're benign in the bureaucracy and doing something utterly horrific because it's house ragger. But it's the thing of, yeah, you have your house ragger, supervisor who is potentially... Uh, I don't know, they, they like working with demons, so some House Ragger, a supervisor, who is also just killing people. I know it, it, it takes some of the politics out of it when there is also murder involved, but you don't interface with the murders because that's not your job. You're some mid-tier bureaucrat. You just find the odd little irregularities where, oh, this room got shut down, but we needed that. Why, why has it been shut down? You go in there and you find some green ash or something like that. And it's these sorts of things. And this sort of game really kind of lends itself to a relatively traditional sort of three-act structure. You can Mm. have the first act being the getting to know everyone and doing the job, filling out tasks, doing stuff, and kind of getting players kind of sunk into their characters. And that's where you start dropping in a few more subtle hints about what's going on and things going wrong. And then it starts to snowball. Maybe you set the timing to when the players have have made the first suggestions of something's not right here. Yeah, Yeah, I thought that too. And then something comes back to bite them in the backside. And Mm -hmm. then they take the fall for something going wrong in the system that the antagonist is doing. And so they get flung out. And so they need to act and say, well, we now need to clear our names sort yes. of dynamic for the second act. So that that brings in some much more driven investigation, potentially with a time limit or something like that. The sort of villains we're imagining here, um, for those of you who think a bit more visually, in the cinematic adaptation, the villain you'd want here is going to be played by Giancarlo Esposito. There's no two ways around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's that sort of nice smiling and utterly ruthless, because that's what the realm will select for. Yes, absolutely. And then once you've kind of chewed through your more substantive investigation for the second act, and they've kind of got all their ducks in a row to deal with what they now realise is the big bad, you then kick off the third act where they put their actual plans into motion and win. And yes. kind of adjust your curve like that, and you can build everything around that. And yeah, we, we said as I said as well, House Ragger as a villain. Another interesting one to do with it is House of Selsey. Uh, it's Selsey work in every game as a villain. You could put House <laughs> of Selsey in your high school game if you were really cruel. Yeah. Or in fact, actually, no. If it's a high school game being run with actual younger players, you make it completely innocent. If it's with your older player group, you're trying to get into that mindset but are still used to how Exalted normally goes, putting it in there could be really interesting. <laughs> Because there should be some spidey senses that start tingling eventually yeah. if you're doing it properly. The other thing as well that we've got listed here and haven't really gotten into, as broad and generic as it is to say, go watch and or listen to Hamilton. It works for how you can make what is ultimately, not minor, but what is ultimately just politicking and bureaucracy, not the standard swinging of swords bit, really quite interesting and really quite entertaining. Yeah, and it also really hammers home how important personality is in all of that yes because it's all about 
big characterful people making political decisions and being part of not necessarily a bureaucracy at this stage, but Hamilton is kind of a ministry game in some senses because you're dealing with the mechanisms of government as much as you are yes. with the people who are making slanderous accusations about how you've glanced at Nick Jefferson's sister and stuff. Yes. If you want a musical, Hamilton. If you just prefer a standard TV show, yes, Minister. Both work. And Sir Humphrey is a tepet. No, I am not taking any questions. <laughs> the other thing that the realm tends to do a lot of is going to war. Either being aggressive and invading places or dealing with people who want to fight them and make them go away. So you have an awful lot of contexts and pretexts for starting a war game, which is something that is just more than lots and lots of battles. I think we've said before that military games need to be as much about spaces in between the fights and the reasons for the fights um, than it is for the actual war stuff itself. There is, in fact, a section in the Dragonblooded book for 3rd edition, I believe it's in the Lookshy chapter, that says specifically about how you run a war game and how you would do it. And it's a beautiful bit of guideline in what is ultimately just a sidebar. And it is all of that stuff. It's like, yeah, focus on the bits between. The fighting is important, but it's as much everything else. You can't... Um, you can just have a war game where you get sent, go and fight that, and then you go and fight that. Then you sent, go and fight that, and you go and fight that. But even the most combat-hungry of players will eventually get bored of that. You need more. Yeah, and working hard to give reasons for the war, reasons for the players and for the player characters as much as it is for reasons for the realm itself. Um, in order to get them to sort of buy in, you need to get them to feel like the place they're fighting over has some worth to them, either as their home that they potentially write into their backstory that they kind of grew up in the satrapy sort of thing, or that they've spent some time getting to know people there and have reasons to invest in the place if you want to be thoroughly cynical, it's just, oh no, my vineyards are going to get burned down. We're going to be set back <laughs> years in wine revenue sort of thing. Or you can do it that they ha actually start to establish some proper local ties and start mm. to go native as yeah. well. And you could have them as well. You could set up a bit for them to question why they're fighting. Also, trying to make them feel invested and get them involved with the satrapial power structure in some ways here as well in that sort of thing. Because getting them to feel like their decisions matter on a wider scope is much, much easier if you are involving them somewhere along the lines there, either as being part of the satraps, advisors, or words to that effect, or potentially leading um, a force that's invading somewhere and that sort of thing. Or qu um, quashing a rebellion is something that is fairly simple, but if you make it reliant on them in that they can't call on backup and that sort of thing, then it can end up being a lot more dramatic because the stakes will matter to them a lot more. Get kind of buy-in with the local merchants and that sort of thing and make sure that they can sort of feel the weight of the responsibility as well. One of the things that you can kind of use to buy into the realm's colonial way of working here is the kind of the responsibilities of the local viceroy and the importance of the man on the spot is one of the phrases that I've heard used in a lot of the history. And the realm has the sort of scale where as much as magical transportation and so on is available and magical communication is available, the stuff that you actually do, you need to kind of make it feel like their decisions are the things that are important because they are the ones that are there and kind of add weight to that by kind of mixing in 
how you're doing things with the satrapy and where all their personal investments are going and that sort of thing. The sort of flip side that I sort of say with these war games as well, if you want it to be particularly sort of subversive, and again, this is on the proviso that players understand just how important sort of house loyalty and realm loyalty is to their characters and all that. But if you want to do your rebellion quashing game, you can make them question why they're still fighting. There is a case where your players, and to some degree even the characters, will have their are we the baddies moment, because the realm is ultimately a, a big imperial power stamping on everyone's hands. Yeah, and one of the ways you can do that is kind of highlight what the normal working of the place is. Again, we've said this before, but establish normal before you disrupt normal as a way of kind of emphasising how change happens. And as part of establishing that normal within the realm, um, you can, depending on your player's tolerances, which is something you must sort out in session zero, if you're going to do something that's making your players genuinely uncomfortable, then you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, But um, emphasising how different the realm sensibilities are to what their characters are and what they want and how they think about it. And so kind of forcing that sort of moral quandary about things before you start so that you can start that kind of thing of there's a rebellion going on oh but they're justified because we know precisely how much tax we've been gouging out of them and look they're eating boiled shoes in order to keep surviving so why are we trying to stop this oh but we have to look they're going to burn our palace down we're going to be homeless and our family are going to hate us forever and all sorts making those sorts of stakes into the thing equally if you have at least one or potentially all of your party being lost eggs from that satrapy that then get deployed there when when the trouble starts that can make for really interesting conflict my brain goes to harborhead which is a real hot zone for this sort of stuff but it is the place that mm. i can instantly sort of think of yeah there would be some lost eggs that became dragon blooded and got taken off to the realm and taught all of the wonders of being a soldier and serving the empress and all of this stuff and then get sent back home to mm. beat up, basically, if you wanted to really tug on the heartstrings, people they knew, and that they know they're not bad people, and they see that the realm might be doing whatever the realm is, but it's, and I'm having to see the legions stamp on it and burn it. And it's that real conflict of, do you take your loyalty to realm and to the legacy of the dragons and all of that stuff? or? Do you take home? <laughs> it requires a very specific sort of group, but it works. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that you have to do with that is you have to telegraph what the consequences are. Because even if the players don't really buy in when you're trying to kind of set the scene and get invested in the setting, at least they can understand that that we disagree with this. But if we don't do it, then we're going to face serious repercussions. But in, if we do do it, then bad stuff is going to happen. So having them understand the consequences, build in specific scenes that explain what those types of actions do. It's going to take a bit of work to try and build in that sort of foreshadowing. But if you kind of make the choice that your characters are going to have to deal with relatively obvious. Yes. At least to you by the point that the choice rolls round. And so if you know what their choices are, then you can foreshadow them that much better. Yes. The thing as well, I would say, is like you'll have your main antagonist in the case of whoever they're fighting, but you can, to some degree, make probably, I wouldn't say the satrap, A, because you kind of do want to have at least some part of government you like, and the satrap is a good one there, but also because 
law speaking, whether or not the satrap would command the legions when rebellion quashing comes around is dubious. But you can make one of the military commanders, maybe not the toppest of top dogs, so that your players still have someone upwards to appeal to, but someone that has some degree of authority over the legions, but maybe not them, maybe like the commander of the next unit over sort of thing, be your secondary antagonist that is, if your players are being like, no, no, we know this is wrong, but we have to stop it, so we're going to be, for you so better, nice soldiers about it, we're going to be honourable, we're going to be this, that and the other, we will fight to protect the realm and what is ours and all of that, but we're not going to be excessively evil. And then you have the other guy who is being your, the commander from James Cameron's Avatar <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> the commander who just comes in here and is like, no, we're here to win this and I don't care about any of these people around the place either. That sort of thing where you have, again, the conflict between the realm's military and your duty, basically. I like the idea of in a war game having an are we the baddies moment, basically. Yeah. And also, arguably, that you can also make that question into not just are we the baddies, but the answer being the war is the baddie. Yeah. It can be really, really quite muddy if you want moral shades of grey. Yeah. Making it that both sides thoroughly understand why they're doing what they're doing and they have good reasons for it. For example, in Giara, that's not too far away from Thorns, so brutal suppression of the local rebellion and trying to stamp out solar anathema or not even a solar anathema, it's just noted as an anathema in the book, is reason enough to completely crush absolutely all resistance to make sure you hang on to this thing and you don't end up with a loose satrapy that is going to be weakened and present a nice target to the Mask of Winters as they march up the coast. You make those reasons very, very obvious. And so you can have all sorts of reasons as to why to make it feel doing the good thing or the bad thing is necessary, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it is that case of, it can be really complex and really interesting when you do that and you make sure that both sides have good reasons, but also, importantly, that your players know that. Um, but yes, the other thing, again, because narrative structure is something that doesn't get talked about enough. A war game is probably one of the easiest ones to put a nice little three-act structure into just based on, well, the stages of the conflict. Like, the... Again, in, in the theme of this episode where we recommend you go and watch a billion different things, go watch the Kings and Generals channel on YouTube for pretty much how you can actually see the, the fact that actual war weirdly tends to have an act structure to it. <laughs> and you can map that really nicely. Yeah, you have sort of the simmering powder keg and the flashpoint, the initial conflict to where everyone's butting heads and fully fresh, and then the point where it all sort of simmers down into something that's kind of ongoing and slogging and then it's whoever lasts the slog fest mm. that actually gets to enforce the terms of the peace generally and one of the things that you can also do within that sort of a framework i mean it depends on uh you also need to, to decide what role your player characters are doing as part of the conflict are they being brought in as a general to lead um to lead troops in an area they don't particularly know which is generally militarily speaking a terrible idea mm. are they people who were already there and set up and have full knowledge of what's going on? Are they being brought in partway through as mediators and those sorts of things? But those sorts of relationships will also determine how they interact with the antagonists. Mm. And I would always recommend you find some way of having the antagonists meet the players in a non-combat context 
whether that's something as basic as a parley or whether you know them from before the war kicks off and so you're kind of having a state dinner or something. You could even potentially do the case of if you are ones that are, again, being shipped in as the legions occasionally are, the Satrapial government has already taken a prisoner of someone relatively high up and you can do it through that. I mean, it'll play out like a bit in a lot of movies where the baddies are talking to the captured hero sort of thing, but you can roll with that. The other thing as well, of course, is to... Because we've been focusing very much on like the small local thing of, of the war here. You can also, like we said at the start, house politics are inescapable, and that's true in the military as well. The legions are, by current day, tools of the houses, not of the realm anymore. And so there is a degree to which it becomes a matter of house politic what happens, how you get deployed, what goes on where, and equally how your player characters are treated by the higher-ups in the Legion because of, well, who owns the Legion now if you are of the wrong house? And it's that it's that sort of interesting thing. But you can also bring that into various other things. It's not just the relationship between the different houses, but things like if you're an outcast, dragon-blooded as well. That, I think, is a particularly interesting one if you're trying to deal with the house military how far can you just say it's oh you're just following orders sir and how far are you willing to toe the line for advancement and how much do you need to do that to save Mm. your own skin heck even there is the argument there actually now that you've just said of again house politics being inescapable of sort of inter-house sabotage even at a military level oh yeah like there could be i don't know say you are um say you are here in a i don't know in a Venef satrapy doing some things because you're one of the Venef leaders and all that, and then some smiling house ragara guy is just like, you could, or you could let these nice freedom fighters go, dangling a bag of jade in front of you, <laughs> and it's that sort of thing because the houses we have it in the books, even on matters of critical realm security, the houses will still fight with each other like this. I mean, it, it's what happened to Tepet, where all of the other houses, they didn't actively stab them in the back, but they made sure that it was very easy for them to get run over. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the Bull in the North is definitely, is kind of the very definition of clear and present danger. So, yeah. But yes, there are lots of other types yes. of games that will happen in the realm. Sort of, well, we've loosely categorised them here under current affairs be that again it's we've mentioned in the war game there can be something it's basically the breakdown of the system yeah as much as there are war games there could be just as many that are for use of a better term the build-up to or preparation for a war that can be just as interesting especially we mentioned this a bit in the dragon blood episode as well but the standard solar rebellion game but from the other side is a really interesting little thing to sort of do where you are with the satrapial government and you're seeing either the rebellion brewing and all of that. It's not the war game because it hasn't gotten to that point. You're desperately trying to stop it getting to that point for whatever reason. Or equally, you can start to see the insubordination as the satrapy gets it in its head that it can just sort of operate on its own, which is equally as dangerous, where satrapies try to break away. Yeah, they're kind of two sides of the, of the same coin. That can almost be kind of the um, a ministry style game as a prelude to something else the kind of you can start seeing the signs in the paper trail and then you sort of re- reason to oh this is actually a pattern to something else this is being funneled away to some people who are doing um who are doing a little bit more than just sharpening sides we're going to be facing some mercenaries here because of these missing funds sort of thing and how else are they doing it is is this actually going to criminal organizations or is it not you can do 
a lot in the way of investigative stuff with those sorts of things. And with some kind of careful setup, I almost want to say you can always do something like the build up to World War One, where you have a lot of what we see as quite obvious the building of dreadnoughts is going to aggravate everyone the alliance system is meaning that if anyone puts one toe out of line and something's going to go horribly wrong and everyone in europe is going to be sucked into something horrific and you can kind of use some preludes and early scenes to make those kind of threads clear and it's a kind of case of oh can you put the fuse out as kind of the theme of the game if you want to be particularly interesting and spicy with it and again this is more something that I'm suggesting here as a reminder to myself as much as anything else. I I have a bit of a penchant for running two games at once with the same group. My current one is our Exalted game, and we do categorise it as one, has two parties controlled by the same players, either the Solar and Lunar party or the Dragonblood party, and our sessions alternate. This sort of thing. Two ones, one where you are in the realm, and another where you're in Lookshy, just building up to that on both sides, and you do that build up to World War One thing as things start getting worse and worse. And it's the interesting conflict that I get that I really do love to see where the players know what's going on, but the characters don't because the characters only have half the picture. Yes, that that needs to be done really carefully, though. There are some players that you'll find ha- will have serious difficulty separating p- player knowledge and character knowledge. Mm. So, um, Abs- Absolutely. Yeah. It's the case of my regular group is in... As generous terms as I can, and my deep apologies for both of you listening, two old men um, who have been role-playing for longer than I've been alive. Fair enough. (laughs) And so they are very, very sort of experienced with it. Mm. But if you have players that can get away with it, it's a really fun thing to do. And that sort of thing of, again, we'll get more into it when we inevitably do a Look Shy episode, but approaching this, you can do it with the Satrapy Rebellion one as well, if if you're just outcasts or whatever you like. But the idea of seeing both sides of it just coming to that hot point and trying to stop it getting to that point where it looks like it's inevitably heading, that's a really interesting struggle, especially when you are people relatively low on the ladder and you're seeing all of this big political machinations above you. Yeah, and I think the player's position there is quite important because you're talking about putting them low down on the ladder, in which case they're likely to be the ones physically stopping the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, just to carry on the metaphor on yeah um kind of diving in front of the bullet so to speak but you can equally do it the other way around and have them higher up where they're um, much more engaged with the political side of it and will also then potentially be aware of the regional context and so on as well so that you know that if this particular satrapy falls then Lukshai is going to have an open road to be able to blockade gloam say and yes things like that. So you can have those consequences and you can kind of then roll out the regional side for the higher-ups rather than just the particulars of the people lower down. Yeah, at perhaps a smaller scale than all of these big international, yes, angry letters, we shouldn't use nation in Exalted because it doesn't really work like that, but um, other than all of this international warfare is, well, basically... The realm is a very, very messy place internally, and you don't even have to be in politics for that. There is an awful lot of, I suppose, beat cop games would be the best way to describe how a magistrate game would go. Uh, Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong with yeah. that, because I think you would kind of be, well, not not beat cop, because that would imply you're in the same place regularly. Let's let's say wandering Columbo. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can see that one. It's it, yeah. Magistrates, we've covered them a bit in the lore episode. Magistrates are a weird little 
yeah, I'm going to upset people who really like the magistrates. They're a weird little relic of when the Empress actually was around <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't have as much of a place in the modern realm system where no. it's all the houses no. and the houses don't like them being there. Mm-hmm. But you are not quite a copper, but something more so. It's really weird and interesting to line it up because I'm struggling with all my historical knowledge to find any example of something in reality that worked like this. Yeah, I don't know whether there are any historically. I mean, the fi- the fictional example that I'll go to is 40k Inquisitors, and it works exactly the same way. But yes, I'd actually say yeah, the or the big one, mm. Wild West sheriffs. As weird as that is for this fantasy Oriental thing, you are the yeah. wandering sheriff. Yeah, I could see that. The yeah. wandering lawman bit. Yeah, that comes into town, sees the bad guy abusing the town, and goes. And no one stops you because you have the authority. You got the sheriff badge. <laughs> but yeah, it's that sort of thing. There's a lot of things you can deal with on the aisle because whilst the realm is powerful and the realm is massive, it's a game of very big heads, and the magistrates have the authority to poke any of them. So if you want to do big game where you're saying be it out in the satrapies or even on the aisle that the local government is taxing the peasants too hard and they're all starving in their houses, you can do that. You have the authority, and equally. There's a bandit problem. You can do that as well. Yeah, and, and the Blessed Isle is going to be one of the places where the authority of the magistrates will still hold some weight. I mean, you might even have some who have managed to gain something like folk hero status, so they'll know they are willing to stand up for them and that sort of thing. So it gives you that much more leeway to do bigger things with them in the Blessed Isle. Equally, I think, for the ones that are further out, and we'll get to this a bit later because my example game for this is a magistrate's game. Um, if you go out into the threshold where the authority of the magistrates is not respected, then it gets more political again because it's a question of not using your authority, but seeing what deals you can cut and acting as a political player with what little leverage you can get to get more leverage and to actually do your job. You can't necessarily walk in and hide behind your badge, um, but you can be the lone lawman who is doing right, who is walking into CD bars, slamming someone onto the poker table and persuading them to do something sort of thing. It's the, the surprising crossover of Exalted and Wild West sort of aesthetics is a weirdly <laughs> recurring thing that will keep coming up. Yeah. Arguably because, and here comes out the story near to me again, a lot of the Wild West mythology is just night mythology reskinned, which is where we can see yeah. a lot of archetypical fantasy. Yeah, I can see that one. <laughs> Sheriff, magistrate, knight errant. Yeah. My only thought about magistrates games is quite how you deal with a large party. It might be a question of one of you is the magistrate and other people are the people who are helping them in whatever capacity. Actually, you can do that, I tell a lie, in the current context, because there is an explicit point in one of the books that is because magistrates are likely to be targeted by various house authorities, they've taken to travelling together. Yep, there you go. Yeah, or you've also got the archons as well. You can have a magistrate and their archons, but again, you're going to have to have a conversation with players as to whether they're happy with a power imbalance between characters, however kind of paper-only that will actually be. Yeah. Again, the flip side of that coin, as is the current way that we've been doing a lot of this episode, because the realm is big and complex, is 
Well, we mentioned getting leverage a lot in the um, in the magistrates one. The next one, rather, watching the program leverage, which I heartily recommend again for this. It's your what can you get away with sort of game. <laughs> again, I know we don't like talking about other games too much here, but for those of you that have played the old Rogue Trader role-playing game, that, because by merit of being Realm Nobility, you're afforded a fair bit of leeway with what you can do and what you can get away with, and there are plenty that do push that. You're sort of tycoon bandits, robber barons, that sort of thing, if you want to be particularly evil and nefarious. Um, you can make it, if it's out in the satrapies, you can arguably make it a, for use of a better term, a heist game in the realm's own territories of you are from the neighbouring satrapy owned by House A, going into the satrapy owned by House B, and causing problems because there's some house rivalry nonsense going on. Or, as a flip side, and just from this evil phrase that came into my head, the Scarlet Pimpernel, but dragon-blooded, <laughs> of the dragon in the realm, probably noble by birth, or party thereof, more likely, that doesn't like the... Again, this works for players that see the realm as the big colonial power and are just like, do I really want to play in that? This is how you do it. You do your Scarlet Pimpernel game, basically, of you are the dragons that are born into this system but really don't like it and can go about and cause, depending on the tone you want, varying levels of trouble and evil in it. Yeah, uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, Robin Hood, whatever you like, that sort of thing. Yes, for that sort of game, you kind of need to kind of set targets almost describing as they're moving through places what things are like, setting the scene. You're not going to have your typical quest givers here at all. It's going to be driven by what the players need. So as much as resource tracking isn't something that Exalted as a game leans into, this sort of thing, if you're dealing with people who are kind of cut off from other resources other than what they can scrounge because they're operating outside of the law or without recourse to anything else, then... Mm. Having them run out of things is one good way of doing it. Your standard quest games are you're assembling this thing, you need X magical material, go get it, and you can find out how to get it. If you're dealing with people who are simply looking to accumulate wealth or trying to destabilize certain people, uh, you can say doing thing A will have an obvious effect. And so you can kind of lead them with the effects they can have. Or you can say, oh, you're running out of a particular resource you've heard rumours that you can get a hold of it from here or there is a particularly rich kind of... There's, there's, a good, there's a good loosely guarded mine here or something like that. And have the necessities of the group be the thing that drives the narrative. Mm. Or, if you don't want to go with the resource tracking but do still want a source of tension with it, there's a flip side. There's a reason I opened with Scarlet Pimpernel and then jumped to Robin Hood because, basically, with the Robin Hood analogy, the resource tracking sort of works. With the Scarlet Pimpernel one, as I was sort of thinking... Basically, I'm imagining running this more like, again, as weird as it is, this is the episode of weird thematic alignments that don't really sound exalted at the front, but running it almost like you would a superhero game where you have the secret identity, because I initially envisioned this on the aisle of you are basically one of the nobles that lives in your palace, has all your things, and you're trying to keep up being a noble by day whilst being the person that either robs the other nobles to give to the poor or breaks all of their plans or all this stuff by night and it's that weird one of you're not actually wanting for wealth because you're still accessing the family money and all of that but you're trying to keep the balance of yes i've got this i mean i'm seeing in my head here now this scene of going to a big gala 
and seeing meeting all the people and chatting to them and all of that and secretly while you're there casing the place to break into it later yes i can really see that working well with an outcast game to be honest so someone who's not really fitting in with realm society and having difficulties adjusting to the various mores and moral codes yeah outcast it can work on that line i was thinking more on live you are actually of house whichever one it might be and either option a you're of perhaps one of the slightly more dubious houses and they're willing to condone you doing this shenaniganry or more likely you go again weirdly full superhero of your of the house but your immediate family are either far away or dead because they went into the army or whatever you like and you're basically just sort of here doing your doing your bit and you for whatever reason you've got again this is more a case of i'm seeing because again from a lot of my players just like you sort of said at the start you a lot of your players see the realm as a cackling villain that's a thing that i sort of see to a degree as well it's a case of yeah you can still have a game in the realm of realm people when your players as people and want their characters to be the same disagree with the realm's whole colonial noble evilton project sort of thing and you can have them working against it from within in an interesting way and it's that sort of thing and again it comes out as more of a heist game sort of thing yeah i'm kind of curious as to how you run that with multiple players though because it's um your your metaphor of the scarlet pimpernel works when you've got one person um doing and doing everything but how 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 you how you structure it with multiple players yeah the i'll I'll spoil it now my my standard play group is a party of two players and so i was always thinking of that because that point you can just go potentially siblings if you can arrange it that they want to be of the same house or otherwise at the point of event that made you realize it was bad like maybe it was your your military service out in the satrapy and you saw like we discussed in our war games the realm's legions being utterly utterly yeah stamping the locals and that's horrible and you didn't like it but it's that sort of thing of yeah you do, you do that and then maybe you made a, a hearth out there a swan kinship that sort of thing i'll fully admit this does need a lot of tweaking to scale up in party size, but I do think it's a really interesting concept. And equally, on your Magistrates game, if you don't like the idea of running it, you can use that as your villain still, of someone keeps breaking into our palaces and stealing all our jade. Magistrate man, fix this! And you go and find it, and it's actually one of the other nobles who has this big moral issue with the realm as it is, which is a nice little interesting bit. In fact, yeah, if you make their issue be less, oh, the realm is a big evil empire, and be more, oh, the houses are corrupt and rotten and all of that, that puts you, the magistrate, in a really interesting position because you, the magistrates, by and large, will agree <laughs> that, yeah, the house system is broken and wrong and this guy is just doing what he can to stop it, but you are duty-bound to the law. I, As it's sort of come across in this, I really like the idea of the samurai movie conflict of the tug between what your heart yearns to do and what you are duty-bound to do. That's a really nice conflict that I like giving people. Yeah, that's fair enough. The other thought that I had for how to make things into a multiplayer game for this sort of thing is that you have people working other angles on the same heist, so to speak. It it gets a little complicated in that you might well end up running a whole bunch of little mini sessions so you have to be quite careful in how you structure it if you're having all your players in the same room at once that they don't get too bored. So you're going to have to w- really work on writing out little vignettes for how each scene is going to go so you know how long that things are going to take and you can switch back yeah. at dramatically appropriate moments. 
which will mean a bit more work. I'm almost not really thinking of kind of casing the joint and working one going in through the front door and one hacking in their way through the undergrowth and sneaking in through the basement sort of thing. It's not anything really quite like that. I was almost thinking of going one degree more removed and working to the same general goal overall, but different tasks, which again, it almost, it almost could be two separate games if you're doing that sort of thing. But arguably you can make it a, but use a better term, a noble of the week sort of adventure where it's like, yes, here's the corrupt dragon blood sort that we don't like this time, who is inevitably how Sinus or Ragara, because when are they not? <laughs> Cynic. And you just go for maybe not so much heist game as complete takedown game where we can have the people, we can plan to ruin their trade investments, we can plan to rob their house, we can plan to sabotage their gala. And it's great because this sort of concept, you can work at all sorts of levels of tone. If you want it to be deathly grim and serious and all of that, you have really actively evil and dodgy ones like, again, uh, House Ragger, a Sorcerer or stuff like that. And you're going around freeing the poor human sacrifice victims or whatever other evil things House Ragger has going on behind closed doors. Or if you want it to just be lighter, it's like, yeah, here we go. We don't like... On the on the it's a house conflict rather than a big political campaign thing. Here's this house sinus guy that we don't like. All of us work together from different angles to sabotage this gala so that he looks the fool when it gets run. That works. <laughs> to just make the whole thing fall apart. It it has a whole gamut of tones you can run, which I really do sort of like because as much as a game will have a rough tone, you as a storyteller do in most exalted games need to vary it within the game. There will be arcs and little story bits that are lighter just because if it's all grim all the time the players will either lose appreciation of how grim it is or just kind of get tired of it and that's sort of the difference between having a theme for a game and having a mood you can have multiple moods for different portions of the game but still express the same overall theme and so thinking about how you express the different parts of that theme is something that's important again it goes into the base of have a theme as the thing driving your overall chronicle, then you can deal with things like the mood as something that you select almost on a scene-by-scene basis, governed by any other overall structure. We've been hammering at the three-act structure here as well, but each of the points in the three-act structure will lean you towards certain moods for where that scene fits into those structures. So yeah, again, it also depends on quite how much you can do that because players are want to go off in entirely different directions that you haven't foreseen. So quite how much planning you want to do with the risk that it goes out the window (laughs) is down to you. Yeah. The final sort of broad catching realm game that we're going to cover today is back in the ministry when I said that that the ministry one was the second most knowledge dependent. This is the hardest one. This is the game that I would argue you as a storyteller probably shouldn't try to run until you are very comfortable with Exalted and very comfortable with the realm because it's... Yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be dangerous and controversial and say it's probably the fiddliest of all of the game types that you could run across the gamut of all of Exalted. And that's that's the Realm Civil War, bless it. Which we've had some discussions and do give us feedback on whether or not you want a whole Realm Civil War episode because there's enough content that we could easily do a whole Realm Civil War episode. Yes, we'll try and make it so that we're not just regurgitating the published stuff, because there is a good amount of advice on how to play the Civil War in the third edition books. So go away and read those as well. You've got an awful lot of that in Urza the Shogunate as to how that could happen. 
yes. Second even published a whole adventure path for it, but that's that's a whole different kettle of fish. <laughs> and in some form, we will have to cover the second edition adventure paths because they're wonderful. I know they're not called adventure paths. I keep calling every pre-written adventure that because I'm a Pathfinder nerd. Do not send me angry letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not the only exalted podcaster who has a great love for Pathfinder. So. <laughs> now, the Realm Civil War is, again, we briefly mentioned it in the episode thing, and again, it will be getting its own stuff lore-wise. Broadly, in this section, we're kind of hoping that user storyteller roughly know what, what it is, because this is not the place where we will be explaining it. This is the place where we will be giving you a, at least a bit of a thread on how you could potentially run this absolutely monstrous conflict as a game, or rather, as a whole chronicle, because I really do think that you need to give this time to breathe. That's the thing that, again, controversial thing, let's get angry letters from people. It's the thing that I like the most about the second edition write-up is that they did make it a massive series. There was a lot of work into it, both before, during, and arguably a little bit of work after it concludes. You need to give this time to breathe for it to feel as monumental as it is. Yeah, and as much as you will have players who are used to doing world-shattering things, and arguably they can do world-shattering things, you need to give them the sense that the Realm Civil War is bigger than them. This more than any other kind of game you can run in the realm. The realm is a, a huge, great hulking behemoth that will outlast any given party, probably. But for this, it needs to feel big. It needs to feel expansive. And so you need to do things like kind of teasing out what everyone's up to and telegraphing what's going on. Yeah. If you can get people to travel... Then once things have kicked off, you can start showing the effects in the lands they've traveled through. Again, using the trick of you travel through it when it's normal, you travel through it when it's a flaming heap because of the Civil War, and you can tell the differences just so you can kind of feel that scope. And I think that's two ways that you can play it. It depends on whether you want your players to be the ones to kick off the Civil War or whether you just want them to feel the effects if you want a local game, I'd argue that the Civil War is a backdrop rather than the focus of the Chronicle. Yeah. And it's a case of, well, what's best for your satrapy? What's best for your people as to how you go? And does that mean that you fall with them or you sell them out to get yourself a better deal or things like that? Those sorts of questions. And you can introduce characters mm, that being way. being quite vague and broad about what we're saying in this thing, mostly because a lot of these things are very dependent on which realm civil war you do. That's not because there's multiple, it's just because across the editions it's been, and third even gives you several, there are many different ways that a realm civil war can start and many different potential factions in it that will sort of determine who you side with. But the sort of thing is, again, you need to make sure that there are personal stakes in this and stakes that are potentially at odds with whichever side of the war that you end up with. Like house ties are the obvious one if the realms of the war you're going for goes cleanly down house lines, which most will. There's one that wouldn't, but it's the standard thing of like, yeah, you, your player, if you're doing that local satrapy game, it's best with my satrapy to side with I'm going to I'm going to spoilers now, I'm going to I'm going to label the sides Venif and Nemon because that's the sides that I consider to be the funnest version of the Realm Civil War, and it's easiest to just say that. So it's better for the satrapy if I side with Venif, but I personally am a Nemon, and so it's that conflict of I'm having to turn against my own house for the sake of my satrapy sort of thing. And arguably, you can do that within the party if you're comfortable with PvP. 
yeah, that is something you will have to clear with your players and get people used to the thoughts of your characters could your characters could die. Are, are you happy with that? See what levels of damage that players can legitimately inflict on other players' characters without causing hurt feelings because the Civil War game is absolutely perfect for heated discussion and role-playing and discussion of even of principles if you want to go that far. But if that leaks from character stuff to player stuff, mm. it can cause real, real problems. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I've seen done with this is the card system. A green card is everything is A-OK, even if you are yelling, screaming, in tears, whatever. If you're holding up a green card, you are fine. Carry on. Yellow is... Once this scene is over, I'd like to talk about something and just clarify some bits. Red is stop the game. I'm not comfortable. Mm. And then it doesn't resume until until you say your piece and you're comfortable to start again. So that's a good way of doing things for stuff that's more distressing in general. But for PvP in particular, really, really feel out your boundaries. And you as a storyteller as well really will need to work with the players to work out what their stakes are and where the flashpoints are. If you can get the players to decide on some possible ones in a session zero, that can be quite fun because they'll know what's coming. They can plan for it. They can express it um, in a better way. So you'll, ha- generally speaking, have a more enjoyable experience all round. But there's a lot of things to kind of take take on board if you're going to be doing inter-party conflict yeah. or doing player versus player conflicts in anything, but in the Civil War as well, because it's so big and sprawly. Yeah. It's good to have them on board. If you, again, like we sort of said a, a little bit in the, in the earlier one, it's, you don't necessarily have to be in the thick of it, because a lot of that sort of stuff that will become a bit more dangerous is a lot more likely when you are, well, again, when you're on the aisle, basically, when you're in the middle of it, when everything's catching fire around you and brother is fighting brother and all of that stuff that is inherent in the Civil War. But if you if you want something a bit, not necessarily even as a backdrop, because we mentioned the Civil War can be a backdrop to your other game. If you want one that is still very much engaging with it, but also very much far away enough from it that things might not get as heated, especially if you don't have the Realm Civil War start in your game, if you have it already underway by the point session one is, you do your one out in the threshold, you have your party as basically what is left of Realm Authority in a satrapy that will have... <laughs> One of the many things that lots of different sources on the Realms of War say is that a lot of the satrapies will probably just get abandoned when the fighting starts because there aren't that many dragons of authority there. They will run off and all that stuff. So your players could have been just low soldiers, or even if you want outcasts who basically have to pick up the pieces of this satrapy that's kind of falling apart as the realm is tearing itself to pieces. And you can do, like we mentioned earlier, that sort of weird, do you go all in on one side? Do you play the neutral mediator of just like, we're not, we're going to be with whoever wins. Do you do this, that, or the other? And that lets you actually use it without getting as heated, especially if, again, if it's already underway, there is a point to which you can have the party as characters as well as our players already be on a similar enough page about it. Because your session zero mm-hmm. does need to make the players are all on a similar enough page. But if you reduce the amount that the characters are doing with it, like if you have the realms of war break out across the course of your game, your characters are inevitably in the party going to argue over what you should do and who you should side with. Um, Whereas if you do this sort of one where it's already ongoing, you can at point of character creation almost be like, yes, okay, we've roughly decided we are working for the people of our little satrapy. And so then there will still be debates Mm -hmm. and arguments within the party about what should we do? Should we 
side with Nemon or Venif on this or that or the other? Should we let them park their ships here? Should we let them do this, that, the other? But you can have, if the party has at least one central goal, even if it's not an idea of exactly what to do, that helps cool it down a little bit because it can align things. Yeah. And how you handle that will vary. But my preferred way of dealing with that sort of thing is say out of character, you have to have a goal, but have all of the negotiations and so on in character because you can then organize all of those different converging political personality clashes and they can all happen at once and just it's going to be a mess whatever happens so oh yeah that's that's part of the appeal yeah i'd almost say brace as a storyteller for anything that the players throw at you because you can have kind of your two or three kind of main threads to how you think it's going to shake out but the players are in all likelihood going to come up with something that you haven't thought of and so you may have to work out something else alongside that. There is also a question of, broadly, how much you make your players the centre of the universe, for a better point of view. There's the case of, we've, we've got in our little script here, again, to lift the veil for you listeners, the question of whether or not the players should be able to declare their house as a contender for or against one side, regardless of what that house might be. But this really comes down to a question of, how much influence on the universe and on the world do you want your individual party to have? And that comes down to a pure case of style for your game. And I also think that depends on how long the game's been running. If the Civil War is a culmination of a multi-year game that you've been playing and you will have, at that point, dragons that will have that much pull and will have that much influence, either personally or through the resources they can command and the allies they can call on and so on, so they almost kind of have to be kingmakers, at least in a direction, or at least be trying to be kingmakers in a direction. That's going to be a very, very different game from you've rolled your characters and you want to play a Civil War game. So power level is a is something to consider as well. Mm. Yeah, it is also as much, though, because this isn't just in a Realm Civil War game. This is arguably in every game of anything, not just Exalted, on how much, not agency, but how much influence do you want to give your players? Because I know there's a significant difference between me and one of the other DMs that I routinely sort of play with comes exactly in this, where I, especially in Exalted, am willing to let my players have a lot of impact, a lot of real, tangible oomph look at what you've done to the world sort of thing, whereas others will want to lean more towards the, yeah, the more realistic, frankly, side of it of, no, 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 even if you are a dragon blood noble or that, you're just one person. The world doesn't revolve around you. And this really comes down to style and what you want your game to be like. Because I, and I've said this several times across this podcast already, I treat Exalted as a power fantasy first and foremost. And that kind of informs a lot of my decisions as a, as a storyteller. Yeah, although I would say that, that sort of a game, you would almost need to steer your characters a bit more towards what's plausible. Yeah. Because I don't think you could, say, have House Nellan suddenly declare as a contender um, for the throne and then win just because the PCs are in House Nellan's. Not without some shenanigans involved. I was going to say, it's the flip side, the the corollary to what I've just said there is, I'm 100% willing to let my players fail. (laughs) Which is another harder thing that, again, you as a storyteller need to decide and your players need to know. Because, again, my players fully know that, like, yes, I will let you do whatever you like. Do still put thought into it because I'm not going to bail you out if you make a really stupid decision. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, that's fair enough. And it's it's that sort of mm. thing. It's like, yeah, you have the freedom to make these choices. Your characters will also have to put up with the consequences. And it's that sort of thing. So like the <laughs> weirdly thing what you just said there with the house nouns and i sort of loosely hinted at the shenanigans i know we've got like one one more little point to talk about but i'll hop down a little bit just to sort of mention with it because this is your broad catch-all thing that you can use for if your players want to try and make something other than the standard plausible ones happen like if your players want peleps or nemon or venif to win okay yeah they probably already could or kathak if kathak can actually be persuaded to do anything but the books keep hinting that so those four are your big dogs and they will be able to probably sit the throne. But if your players want one of the other houses to try and do something or even try and declare for the throne themselves, there's lots of shenanigans across lots of the books. Third again tries to play it a bit more realistic in heirs to the Shogunate at least, though I'm hoping that later books that get more into the wider universe will also bring in this stuff, but that's just the second edition apologist for me again coming out. as again. Regardless of your opinion on second edition, I know people that say it's awful and a lot of their criticisms are valid. Have a look at least at their Civil War books, because a lot of the weird little events that happen in it can be brought into your third edition game as a way of shaking up the balance. Because, again, to minorly spoil some of those books, a lot of those things circle around the return of the Scarlet Empress, one of the primordials, or well, Yosies at that time, uh, having a say in it, and Heaven trying to have a say in it, etc., etc. Because this is a big event, and so all of the various powers, not just of creation, but outside it, will want a swing in this because it determines very much everyone's effects. And those are the ways that you can actually shake things up. If you wanted House Nellens to... Again, I'll go with your example of a player declares for House Nellens. Yeah, okay, that's going to be a very uphill battle. You're going to have to do lots of politicking with other houses to try and get them to side with you, etc., etc., etc. You could also then have some extra shenanigans of for whatever reason you like, the, again, the Siderials, the people behind the Immaculate Order, decide that what is best for creation's continued existence is if he wins instead of Nemon or any of that. And so suddenly then you can get the Order on side or you can get some other shenanigans. It's ways to play the status quo up if your players want it to go that way. That makes sense. And if for those of you that are looking for those materials, we will drop books for the second edition and all of, the, all of that, a reading list for all of this stuff into the show notes so you can dig through those materials at your leisure um because there is enough material here for a full episode we're not mm. going to have that no. episode now um or right this second no. um but do feel free to read um what bit what bits you can and make your own mind wait until the future for book club second edition adventures yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i'm down for it i want it it's great okay but yes the the other thing to do as course of gf is map out your civil war without the players. Decide what you think the line will be if the players don't get involved. Again, this is assuming you'll give your players a good degree of agency and or you just want to have it be a backdrop. Both cases work here. But map it out. Map out how you think it's going to go. Who's going to win? Who's going to book, book, book? Don't let your players see that, but let it... Write it out as if the players weren't there and then let them play in that script so that you can change it when they start throwing things off course or what have you. Because it helps you set things up in the future. It helps you make it feel grander and more consistent. Yes. And it also gives you an idea for the backdrop. If they suddenly go to somewhere else, then you'll know roughly what should be happening in that area based on who's there and so yeah. on. I'm not saying you need to map out the whole of creation and and the grand military force moves and just 
make it make a copy of the map and draw a vast Namon coloured arrows in one direction and Regara coloured arrows in another and all the rest of it to simulate troop movements. But just knowing yeah. roughly how things should play out in a given area that players are likely to go to will help give you that additional local colour as well as giving you a rough kind of plausibility meter for how likely um, the player's schemes are to go off and who they're going to upset. The final sort of Dragon Blood game as well is another one that will get angry letters sent in. The Aselsi game. We've discussed House Aselsi several times. I'm quite taken to them, as are quite a lot of people. There are a couple of ways you can use Aselsi. If you want an entirely House Aselsi game, it's going to play out kind of like Hitman, kind of like Assassin's Creed. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. And it's easy to do a party of this because Aselsi is a whole house. And arguably, the numbers on how many Aselsi there are are always deliberately fluffy because, no, the realm doesn't know. The realm thinks it's just like one small family in a house near the mouth of peace. But again, the law keeps saying, no, 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 House Aselsi is a whole house and it's spread out. You can easily have a party of Aselsi somewhere and you get your bit of, if you want to be properly shenanigansy. And this is another way that you can do a whole, we're fighting against the corrupt house system sort of thing if you want to make them seem... If you want to make the house, if you want to highlight some of the more evil bits of the realm and have your players be able to do something about it, the SLC game is again the way to do it. We discussed the sort of the way you do the planning, the heist game and all that stuff in the earlier one. This is the same with assassinations, honestly. And there is going to be a group of players that that would really want this because it's not just a fight. It'll never just be a fight because House of Salsi aren't mercenaries. They don't run in at the head of an army. They go in there. They try to get to know you. They're suave. They're charming. They're whatever. The whole gamut of characters you can make can be House of Salsi. It's just that their end goal here is to make sure that that noble, well, his house slighted our house and helped commit to our downfall. So it's time for his head to roll. And there's lots of things you can do with that. Yeah, you can fit that to all different types of game. I, I was almost thinking, like you're saying, Suave Noble. I was also thinking, well, the Joker works just as well. The kind of burn it's- everything to the ground because you want to watch the world burn is perfectly valid as well. And even for a broader arc, a longer game, if you want to set it out in a satrapy, then it can be very much mm. the fact that, well, the satrapial government is a hit list for you. You, the players and the characters, won't be seeing it as kick the realm out, because at least the way I view it, a lot of House of Celsi is loyal to the idea of the realm. They just hate the houses. Because House of Celsi is one of the few realm houses that will actually honestly be like, no, this house is abusing its authority to rule here. Time to deal with them. Chunk, 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 chunk. Yeah, but that to me immediately says, well, what about the aftermath then? If the end goal is lots of people to die, I mean, part of that sort of an Celsi game kind of makes me wonder... Are they going to try and put someone in who they can control and then flip as an Aselsi at some point um, in the in the future? Or it's tricky. There's part of me that thinks the actual player characters, the ones who would be doing the stabbing, don't necessarily care as much because they will have received, to some degree, the orders of, look at what's happening in this satrapy, they have to go. But if you want them to have that kind of agency... It is implied, again, editions vary on how strongly they imply it, but third does at least imply that House of Celsi has at least a portion of the Immaculate Order keeping an eye on them and making sure that they can keep doing what they're doing. So there is a degree to which we discussed beforehand that the Immaculates tend to be at the front of a lot of revolts. There can be a case of, yeah, 
maybe the Immaculates have tried to lead a revolt here and it got quashed because the house was very good at military. And so it's a case of now House Salsi just sort of has approached them at the palace or whatever and just said, you had some trouble in that satrapy there. We could deal with it if you can line up the replacements. It can be a case of the, the temples are going to cover for the aftermath. You just have to do the dirty work. And it's that sort of thing. And again, this sort of a game is another one of those where the level of the player's involvement or the player character's involvement will dictate how the story goes you can- the t- and the type of game because you can have the ones on the ground doing the assassination. You can have the ones playing the politics quite nicely. I, I raised to you. Oh. I raised to you. Dragon-blooded V for Vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically, that is, that is a Celsi. Yeah, that is a Celsi. <laughs> it, it completely yeah. works. I yes, absolutely it love it. Uh, it's the weird thing if you actually repurpose the solar game of Spark a Revolution. <laughs> yes. But you're doing it as some House of Celsi people. Question for you Equally on that though. one then. Would you tweak the power level? <laughs> Would you tweak the power levels oh. involved? Because solars can do quite a bit more. But what's the kind of the concern for how you gauge what Dragon Blooded can and can't do? What I would raise to you there is more a case of <sighs> Solars versus Dragonbloods in this sort of satrapial revolution thing. Even though the, the arc is broadly the same of try and rally up the people, spark a riot, etc., 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 I'd say the methods of it are kind of different. Yeah. Because a solar one, you'll rally up an army and you'll march it in. That doesn't seem to be the Asalsi way to me. The Asalsi way there, would, I think, would be slipping around quiet hints, a little bribe to some leaders of the local townsfolk, that sort of thing. It'll rather be Solas lead a revolution from the top, wreathed in sunlight, all glorious, happy, smiling, lead an army in, save the day sort of thing. Whereas an Iselsi one is a lot murkier, a lot more V for Vendetta. I wouldn't necessarily take the power levels, but rather the approaches that are available to you. That makes sense, yeah. And then you can kind of get Again, go back to Celsi with the politics. They can also potentially insert one of their own as the satrap sort of thing. Because I don't know, I, I kind of I feel that the need to have a Celsi wanting an end game uh, of being in control of something, mm. not, not necessarily just being the vendetta. Yeah, there are two things I like to tie House of Celsi to. And before we get the angry letters, yes, this isn't really directly stated anywhere in canon. This is more a case of what we're given. This is what I work with. I either tend to like to tie them directly to a lot of the Immaculate Order's operations, because House Nemon are the Immaculate House, for use of a better term. Yes. All of them do worship, but Nemon are really well known for it. But I would argue that they're not the house the Order uses, because I'd almost say that Nemon, both herself and the house, will occasionally try and give the Order, give the Immaculate Order orders, for use of a better term. Whereas Iselsi are very much a knife that have been put in the hand of the Order to do as it pleases with. Because they, yeah. nowadays they live or die by how much the Order's willing to protect them. Yeah, because the Empress is gone. <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah, the Order is their only non-house thing. It's that, or, and again, this is the bit where second edition of Apologia comes in again, you tie them into whatever you've decided has happened to the Scarlet Empress. Whether or not they know is irrelevant. You make sure they are tied into it. Because again, second edition did ultimately come up with an answer yeah. to what happened to her that made lots of people very angry, but you can tie House of Celsi into that quite neatly and it makes them agents of some very interesting people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, with that teaser for the Celsi episode, because I don't think we want to get into that here, shall we get into the pre-prepared adventures? 
that we've that we've done for this. Indeedy. In keeping with the thoughts of kind of genre crossing, I've gone for my kind of political western-ish with a magistrate-centered game. And this is a game that is set in Lathe, which is a satrapy and a realm port um, just to the north of the Cinder Isles. It's a place where there's all sorts of different factions going on. So you've got your satrap, who is not defined in canon, but I would put them down as being uh, beneath because Lathe is a trading port. Although you can, with the proximity to the call, you can also argue that it would be a good investment for a Pelops as well. If you've got an overarching campaign, feel free to switch up which house precisely is in charge. But also there will be some involvement with Sinus as well in the plot. So they could also be potentially steering the whole thing. But Lathe is built in the carcass of a great beast. Uh, the heart is an immaculate cathedral. Um, the stomach is a symposium of alchemists. I envisioned the guts kind of being the market district and so on. And the skull is where the aristocrats live. So you've got that very, very literal higher class thing going on. And you've also got lots of demon worshipping cults, which I kind of envisage as being in the tail. I almost... The structure of the beast that makes up Lathe isn't defined, but I almost imagine it as a dragon or a worm wrapped around a mountain as the overall image for how it all makes sense. With a broken off halberd or spear or glaive or whatever from a war strider striking through its heart, just to finish off the image. But the demon cults are one of the other key things. The Immaculate Order does have a cathedral in there. They have contacts with the demon worshippers of Lathe as well. They regularly cleanse them out, but they also have agents down there. So either you can make players agents of the Immaculate Order, or my original conception for it was magistrates who are going in to investigate some irregularities with the tithes from what you hear of the satraps' doings, that they are basically spending well beyond their means from what's showing up and from the taxes in Lathe, so you're kind of wondering where all of this wealth is going to. So you can arrive and start investigating, start asking questions around the market. The markets will all seem perfectly normal, and the goings on at the goings on at the Immaculate Cathedrals will be relatively normal. If you can cozy up to the right people in the Immaculate Order in the place, then they will tell you that some of the demon cults are both getting more vicious and getting less numerous, and they're not doing anything about it. And so you can also start accompanying some of those demon-busting raids where you're going to start finding people in the lower houses who are terrified of anyone who looks anything like the satrap or government. If you want to start quizzing the aristocracy, you basically find them a bit like opium fiends, that they are offering you up many and various substances which you don't recognise, which is something you can also play up if you have a house sinus in the party. This is some brand new drug that they're using and that they're on. Basically, the effect is soporific and can potentially last for days. Mild hallucinogen. The effects don't really matter. Those are more or less what I've just spun out as something, a very, very obvious drug affecting the upper classes, but make whatever effects you will. You can find that this stuff is essentially being stored in various places. Um, the docks are lined with it. This is very, very obviously where all of this extra revenue is coming from. And you can find out uh, um, the big reveal is eventually that the drug is Soylent Green, basically. That they are taking people out of the lily pits 
out of the slums that no one cares about and rendering them down into a substance. You can see signs of that in the alchemical symposium as well, that you speak to the right people there, put pressure in the right places, and they will roll on their masters. And basically, it depends on what sort of a game you want to run. If it's the Immaculate Order, then you can lead an open rebellion and say, you're not treating your subjects properly. This is against the perfected hierarchy and rouse up all of the Kung Fu monks who have been training fighting the demon worshippers all this time and can be quite successful at it. Or as magistrates, you can try and see who you can cajole into being on your side. If you're doing the magistrates, I wouldn't make the order on its own the one thing you have to target. You would have to do things like winning over a substantial portion of the underclass by offering them either some sort of immunity from their crimes or something like that. Do things like bribing the aristocracy with artifacts that you can procure from somewhere, from merchants that you can threaten, bribe, cajole, do whatever. There'll be a whole write-up of the different types of factions and what sort of levers you can use um, for this, but it's ultimately to lead an open fight against the satrap and their goons who are making this stuff and to make sure that it never gets made again, basically. And that was my that was my idea initially for a Magistrate's game, but I think it would work just as well as an Immaculate's game as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's very, very nice. And it's interesting that the, the one crossover point we've got here, because again, for those of you behind the veil, we don't talk with each other too much beyond the like five-word summary to make sure we're not writing the same game about what we're doing beforehand. That's how we make these go in completely different directions and be interesting. Because we've both basically gone for investigative mysteries, but in very different directions. The way that I sort of like with that, it's interesting that you said the satraps probably have a knee for a pair with that, because the moment you came out with the, the whole Soylent Green is people thing, I'm just like, ah, oh, Ragara. Because <laughs> they would. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Especially in a satrapy that is lousy for demon cults. Yeah. That reeks of Ragara to me. But yeah, the that really does work and it's really quite funky. I mean, I'm, I'll am i openly admit Lathe is too far west for being in my normal area of expertise. So the, the whole setting bit there was kind of wild for me. It's, yeah, no, I, I like this. I would, I would very much play that. It's the awkward thing of like, I don't have particularly many things with follow-up for that because it's just, yeah, from the summary given, a good game, well written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and yes, these will be written up on wondrousatlas.wordpress.com forward slash story dash hooks, just so you can find them once we're all done here. Indeedy. Mine, on the other hand, is informed by some reading that I was doing at the time, and I won't tell you until the end, so listeners make a little game of it, seeing what was Ral's reading when he was coming up with this. So, it's going to be a murder mystery, first and foremost. I've titled it The Curious Affair at the Gala at Heifan Joe. Um, Hanfei Joe, sorry, I can't read my own writing. But yeah, this is a murder mystery first and foremost, so if you're integrating it into an extant game, this is probably going to be a bit more of your downtime than a big arc, because I imagine, depending on how quick your players are and how much you want to really emphasise the chatty bits, this is probably a one and done in like three to three to five sessions-ish. But it's a nice little light appetizer, or it can be a shorter game in and of itself. In either case, this is the rare case of an Exalted game where your players won't need much in the way of combat skills, although equally that applies to the game that you came up with just there, where the combat skills aren't too essential. In brief, the players get a mysterious invite from one Ladal Malla, 
to Agala. If you play as Arladal, there's lots and lots of things in the write-up here about what if your players are House A or House B and what will they know, because this is on the aisle. I'll spoil you that now. If you play as Arladal, they might loosely know about her, just kind of for some eccentricities and interest in matters occult, which for the Ladal that you're noted for that is saying something. But yeah, you get a mysterious invite to a gala at her palace at Hanfejo, which I'm, in fact, I'm envisaging as a tiny little island off the coast of the isle. Like, think the sort of distance that, like, Brownsey Island is from the coast of England. The sort of thing where you're going to take, like, a, an hour or so to get there on, on the old, old-fashioned round boats that you got. But basically far away enough to consider this a neatly isolated area, but not so far mm-hmm. that it's politically independent. Yep. And broadly, you'll go there and you will find... A nice, neat ten other guests at this gala. Conveniently, one of every house. Funny that. Funny that, isn't it? Who all have nice little character write-ups in the the write-up I've got, because this is very much the point that you're working with here. This is a character-driven mystery, broadly. You've got your... Like, the one just to pull out, the sinus that I have here. One sinus kefi kara, a wood aspect. An older sinus, but with more of a silver fox vibe to him. Make him as suave as you can pull off, and he'll be played by Clooney in the hypothetical movie adaptation. That sort of thing. And all of them have, in the write-up, their secret. Because all of them are hiding something. Again, that sinus. Because I don't like how sinus, one of his lovers, one of the many lovers, is an abyssal. He doesn't know this. They're very good at hiding it. But he is routinely bedding an abyssal and may potentially be an unwitting pawn of a death lord. Excellent. And it's all these sorts of secrets that, if they came out, are very, very criminal and very, very fatal. And you're all invited there, and you get led in by the servants. It's all nice, and it's a big, beautiful mansion that has as much of a write-up as the characters do about the layout of it and all of the bits and bobs. With Because it's a Ladal, lots of little secret corridors and weird libraries and stuff like that, that, again, if you've got a Ladal in your party, they won't be surprised about for a minute, because I imagine every Ladal dwelling is like that because House Ladal are both paranoid and very much into this occult stuff. The big thing here is that you get some time after you've arrived to actually genuinely do basically a bit of partying. You'll get led to your rooms. There's some stuff that you can do investigation when you're there in the rooms to notice. Huh. All the rooms are effectively soundproofed, which is a peculiar little thing. And there's the servants there who will help you around and be accommodating. Some time basically to meet the full cast over probably a couple of days in-game, of just eating, drinking, being merry, being really concerned, weirdly, that the host hasn't made an appearance, and the servants keep saying that, oh, oh, she's unfortunately a bit under the weather, but she'll be out soon, and all of that stuff. (laughs) She's not the first one that you see dead. Um, (laughs) Okay. Just to spoil it, because... Don't worry, to spoil for the storytellers, she is also dead. Figures. Yeah, but there is a bit where you all wake up and come down to the main hall of a morning, expecting more of the revelry and the fun. And there's a big menacing letter marked with the Imperial Mon nailed to the inside of the door that has been barred, reading that each of you here has transgressed, each is a traitor to this realm and to its empress and to the very legacy of our blood. Each and every one of you has committed crimes against her most august and imperial majesty, our Scarlet Empress, and for your sins shall you face the judgment of her blades. And yeah, unsurprisingly, they're going to start getting picked off one by one. To spoil the other bit, the party weren't supposed to be invited. I put a couple of options in the write-up for it. Either, literally just the clerical error of the invite was meant for someone else, and it gets delivered to you, or something as sort of neat as whoever it was meant to go to 
sort of thought something was up and tried to just discard the letter or just left it on a table or something like that. I'm imagining the postal service in the realm is not all nice addresses and stuff. This will just be an envelope left somewhere without any clear identifiers on it sort of thing. Basically, you're not meant to be there. So your players are not immediately on the hit list. But it's the case of even make your players magistrates if you'd particularly like, because that then comes in as a weird one of why has this house, this low tier but still wealthy enough house dynast invited us to a party sort of thing. Either way, you get to investigating. You really play up the bit of making everyone suspect everyone else. What's going on? Who's doing what? You can end up finding the secrets of the different guests here, each of which will sort of make you think in their own way, ooh, they could be the one doing this really raising the tensions and playing people against each other and really sort of written basically as a sort of way of explicitly if the players sort of think they've got the right person and try to lock them away and arrest them or whatever have you and it's not the right one that bumps them up to next slot to get killed because if the players get complacent and think they've done it then that's not right the big twist at the end here is unsurprisingly for this sort of setup, and people who know the fluff well enough will have already cottoned onto exactly what's behind this. One of the guests is an Iselsi. <laughs> of course. And this is a nice, clean way when you already have the house, because, yeah, Mala is dead in one of the secret rooms and has been dead long enough to be a skeleton in a secret room. And the Iselsi have basically just been using this house as. Not an execution house, this will be the first time that they've actively brought people here to kill, because that would attract attention, but as a nice base to plan things out of, because when the normal owner is known as a bit of an eccentric Ladal, people aren't expecting frequent communiques. <laughs> and likewise, the servants are in on it. It's all a big setup. There are a bunch of crime scenes sort of written up that the players can find as people have been killed in what your assassin would think to be an ironically fitting way. Like, the Venice little secret is that the tithes that his ship, he's a captain of a ship in the Merchant Navy, the tithes that he takes back to the Isle, he routinely embezzles, like, large quantities of it, and just no one notices. And so when he gets killed, he's got gold coins just scattered all over the corpse sort of thing. That sort of ironic execution sort of thing. And it's the bit of the players can slowly start to try and figure out what's going on, maybe eventually find Mala's body. Like, it's written so that you initially think, oh, obviously, we haven't seen the host. The host is the one killing people. The host isn't. And it's that sort of thing of find that, find the mysteries of this house, of what this Ladal was doing. If you're not Ladals, end up discovering what the Shadow Crusade is as a part of it. And it's that sort of thing of you're racing against the clock because the cast is slowly whittling down. and until the players figure out what's going on with the whole everyone's committed horrible crimes and we're not horrible criminals, that real sort of slightly oppressive feeling of we could be next that's going on. And uh, yeah, it's shamelessly Agatha Christie. Oh yeah. Is there an opportunity to get everyone in the drawing room and explain your logic? Oh, inevitably. Although I don't think that one was Poirot. In fact, no, that one wasn't Poirot. It didn't have any of the big-name detectives. But you ah. could make a dragon-blooded Poirot. And also, Agatha Christie wasn't a fan of boss fights at the end of her mysteries, uh, which I think was that's, just a flaw of her writing. That's true. Because <laughs> <laughs> having the party members have a bit of a boss fight against mm. the Asalsi at the end, if it's in a larger game where they have built combat characters because you do combat, you can work a boss fight in once they've got the Asalsi at the end there. Yeah, figures. But it's all of these things. Also, and equally, just to round off the thing of why don't they just all run away, after the first killing has happened, people probably will try to leave or to either leave or to fetch magistrates or if you're not magistrates or whatever. 
pretty much after your first night sleeping there, the servants will have gone off and taken the boat that you came in on. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. If the players think they could swim it, if they're like a water aspect or whatever, just make it very stormy as well. Just contrive ways to keep them on that island. Makes sense. Although my one thought with that is that with the servants gone, the boss fight can be a bit of a walkover. With systems like Exalted, the combat becomes an action economy. If you've got a large party against one Aselsi, you need to find a way to balance it. So having some servants around would help with that. That works. I was going to say as well, if it came to a numbers game, either option A, Weirdle Dollhouse, give it lots of booby traps and stuff that the Aselsi knows because they've been working out there for a while so that they can turn the terrain against you to try and keep it into micro one-on-ones. Or option B, make the Aselsi a sorcerer and let us summon some goons. Because <laughs> Makes sense. optional demons works. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. It's basically a nice little three-ish session thing to just build up some tension and let the players do some detective work, meet some characters, learn a bit about the houses and all of that bit, and then find an Aselsi. And if you want a boss fight, beat up an Aselsi. If not, you can just go with the line of, well, we clearly outnumber you, grab, and they might try to struggle a bit, but you can just, if the players aren't in a particular combat kit, you can just be like, yeah, no, they can try, but two, three, four, however many dragons grabbing onto you, you're not going to be able to wriggle your way out of that. Yeah. In which case, I think that is about it for this episode. I do hope you've enjoyed us rambling through all the various stories that you can tell with the realm. If you have any questions, anything you want us to look at, anything you want us to let us know, please do send us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at wondrousatlas. And please, if you've liked the show, or even if you haven't, please do leave us a review. We would absolutely love to hear from you. And next time... We are starting our romp through the houses and we are kicking it off with House Kathak. So please do join us next time as we go through one of the biggest and most archetypal military houses in the realm. Indeed. And until then, thank you ever so much for cracking open the wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny with us. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, an exalted podcast presented by Aramithius and Rails. Check out the show notes and story seeds from this episode at wondrousatlas.wordpress.com and if you have any questions, drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. The opening music for this podcast is Travelling to the Blessed Isle by James Semple, and the closing music is Exploring Creation, also by James Semple. Both tracks are taken from the album Exalted, Dreams of the Second Age, and are property of Onyx Path Publishing, used with permission. A single first circle smallest? Yes, first circle demon. Almost said third circle. Don't put a single third circle demon up against children. No! (laughs) (laughs) You're wanting these angry letters, aren't you? I am. I'm courting angry letters. You seem to forget the way all of these algorithms work. Anger generates engagement.